Hello, everybody. Welcome into Sports Day Insider. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by David Moore. Hello, David. Hello, Kevin. How are you? I'm great. And and uh, rolling his eyes uh, is uh, our old pal Evan Grant. Hello, Evan. How are oh, you? Oh, you can hear. Amazing. You want to tell everybody how long we spent so that you could find the right buttons to push on your fancy whiz-bang thing there? Uh, yeah, that's what it was, my fancy whiz-bang thing. Uh, but, you know, the great thing is that we have our old pal Jeff Whittington here to remedy any situation that comes up. Unlike you, someone I could never count on to help me in any situation, no matter what I, it I is. I wonder who it was that suggested that after many fruitless attempts at trying to reach you through the chat function of this uh, technology we have, who suggested to Jeff, hey... Why don't you call him? <laughs> I was reading what was going on in the chat thing, but I don't think people really want to know about our technological. Oh, they want to. No, no, believe me, if there's one thing people can identify with, it's your technological struggles. No, no, that's that's not it. They uh, don't. It, but maybe a better gauge would be what we had to endure while you were going through your technological struggles. And Evan, could you now recount your joke book? Oh no! What we, we are. Were I, to yeah, I was just. To. I was, we are not. Just, just give us two. Just, just give our listeners a, a small sample of what we had to endure. Beyond I just am really surprised that we have not had a story on this yet, David. That that the NFL has, in fact, <laughs> banned players from owning chickens. I, I had not seen yeah, that. Yeah, apparently, it's a penalty for personal fouls. The best part about it is that David just walks right into being the straight man. It's like all of a sudden Evans, all of a sudden David is Jerry is Dean Martin and Evan is Jerry Lewis. Holy cow. All right. Holy so now cow. for the remaining four listeners that have stuck through that. <laughs> oh my gosh. All right, uh, Evan, while you go look up some more joke books <laughs> oh my that, your, that your dad left. Just yeah. randomly insert those during the show, will you? Yeah, yeah that'd be great. That's, yeah, that'd be great. That's great podcasting material. Uh, so, 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 David, you know, we went into this season thinking that the Cowboys had by far the best quarterback in the NFC East, right? I mean, this guy, Dak Prescott, number one. And he's probably number two, three, four, five, six, seven, and eight, and then and then somewhere after that, the rest of the NFC East would fill in. Um, and so, and that's still the case. He is Dak is still clearly the best quarterback in the uh, division. There's no question about that. Uh, but I will say that uh, Taylor Heineke has played pretty well for uh, the Washington Football Team. He's he's a uh, kind of the guy that at the Fans love. He scrambles around. He's drawing it up in the dirt. He's doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And then uh, you also have Daniel Jones, who, who apparently Jason Garrett is having quite an impact on uh, his career. He's he's playing better now and starting to. Uh, he's not turning it over every uh, five minutes. Uh, so uh, so that that is improving the level of play somewhat in the NFC East. So should the Cowboys feel challenged now? because of the improved play of these quarterbacks. And I didn't say, I, you know, Jalen Hurts didn't play great against the Cowboys. As a matter of fact, they made him look pretty bad. Uh, he did play well last week, though. So uh, I'm going to say that that he has his moments as well. No, they should not feel 
threatened or challenged by the rest of the <laughs> NFC East quarterbacks. And look, there, to me, that the the separation point is the consistency, right? I, I think you saw Daniel Jones have a good game. They're now one three. How did he play in those three losses? Uh, you know, Hertz had a good game before playing Dallas. Did not look good that game. Uh, Heineke uh, looked good the last game. How did he look the game before that? Uh, to me, what you've seen unfold here is, yeah, those teams are dangerous and they can win, but they're not going. They're not. Their quarterbacks have not positioned them to win on a weekly basis with what is around them. Uh, they're going to have moments. Um, you know, they can lead a team to victory. But do you go into every game saying, you know, Heineke is going to lead Washington to a win? They, they can match with whoever they're going against. Daniel Jones is as good a quarterback or better than who he's facing on the other side of the field. And every time any of those guys, and I would say most quarterbacks in the league now, go against Dallas and Dak Prescott, the answer is you're going to have to outduel or be a better quarterback on that day than Dak Prescott, what are your odds of doing that? And, and that's what Dallas has right now that I don't think it necessarily has had to this level in recent years in that every time they step on the field with the level Dak Prescott is playing, they have a chance to win that game. That's not saying they're going to win every game, but you know, if you accord that sort of respect to the Aaron Rodgers of the world, the Tom Brady's of the world. Um, at least now, that's not to say Dak Prescott is at their level. He hasn't accomplished what they have, but he's playing at a level now where you also have to say that, uh, yeah, he gives them a chance to win every time out, regardless of what's happening around him, regardless of how good the defense is playing that day, regardless what adversity they face. Uh, he's playing at that level, and there aren't a lot of quarterbacks in the league you can say that. So as soon as you have one playing at that level, I think it does nudge you into the upper echelon in the conversation of the NFL, and, and the Cowboys are there right now. They well, really let, let me just say this so, about those three quarterbacks before we go any further. They all have one thing in common, and that is that each of them has played a game against the Atlanta defense. So let, let's just take all of that out because that's where Hurts looked good and that's where Heineke looked good. Um yeah, I, I think the second part of it is that, yeah, Dak looks really good, and he is really good. He's also got great weapons all the way around him, right? I mean, I I think this Cowboys offense is incredibly balanced, um, and it is multifaceted, and that's going to make any quarterback look better as well. When, you, when you've got the number of options that he's got, the Cowboys are folding the tight ends in pretty well as, as, as well. Um, it, it just improves the, the quality of the quarterback play. Yeah, Dak threw for more than 400 yards in the opener. They lost. He's thrown for 228 yards or less in the, each of the last three games, and they've won all three. Uh, really, a couple of them decisively. You know, this past week, and, and he didn't even realize it because his impact on the game was so great afterwards. It was like, uh, well, you know, did you realize you didn't throw for 200 yards? He only threw for – he only had 14 completions and 188 yards. Uh, and scoring 36 points against what was the league's number one defense coming into the game. You know, Carolina had only allowed 30 points all season in three games. Uh, Dallas got 36, with Dak Prescott throwing for 188 yards. But he threw four touchdowns, and three of his touchdown passes came in a span of eight minutes and 20 seconds in the third quarter. 
So um, he he's just adapting in this offense, is adapting to whatever the game is. And uh, he beats you in burst when given an opportunity, and the third quarter was an opportunity where, where they flipped that game. You know, that's the, the thing that's different about Dak for me uh, is that he's always had, you know, this great athleticism and very tough and uh, and a great leader and all the things that you like in a quarterback. And uh, but uh, the the one the biggest drawback for me always was uh, just too slow in the pocket, too, too indecisive, uh, waiting for something to unfold. You know, the best quarterbacks and what has made Tom Brady the greatest quarterback ever, or the pre-snap reads he makes, uh, the quick progression, the ball is out. The ball is out in less, sometimes in less than two seconds. So that's just phenomenal how how quickly he's done. And then he, he, he got to the point where people would say it didn't matter what your pass rush was against Tom Brady. Nobody can get to the quarterback in less than two seconds. So uh, that is really important. That is what separates, to me, the really good quarterbacks. Let, let's take a guy like Tony Romo. Who loved to improvise? Who 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 wanted to? He wanted to see Dez get open before he threw him the ball. He did not want to throw the ball to Dez before he made his break. That kind of thing. He wanted to see guys open, and that's and that's great and it's fun to watch if you can if you can get out of of harm's way and and do what you have to do. But it doesn't lead to an efficient quarterback system. And and what you described earlier, David, reminds me of uh, of of course of what the most efficient quarterback probably I think the Cowboys ever had was Troy Aikman, uh, a guy who uh, every game was not p- putting up fantasy numbers. He was he was a guy that was going to throw for about 200 yards. He was going to throw two or three touchdown passes, and you were going to win the game. <clears throat> and, and one of the things that always struck me about Troy, if you were watching the game on television, was that you, you can't see the whole field. But when Troy was about to release the ball, I would think – this guy's going to be wide open that Troy is going to have found the guy in the, in the defense who is wide open. He's not trying to fit it into a tiny window. He's not trying to show off his arm. He's not trying to show how great he is. He's just going to find the right guy and throw it to him. And, and the Cowboys are going to have success here. And I think that's a little bit of what's happening now. We, we, we see Dak. Uh, I, I think ESPN quoted an anonymous uh, in, uh, NFL executive who said that, he just seems to be going through his progressions much faster now. He has a much better grasp of the offense and what they're trying to do. And, he, and he's been playing in this offense for a while now with Kellen Moore. And so he should be doing that. And he is. And I think that's the the difference to me is that you just see the confidence that he has now in the pocket uh, of where he needs to go. He he is finding those open receivers. Uh, and, of course, it, it was hard to miss some guys like Cedric Wilson the other night. I don't know who was supposed to be covering him. There wasn't anybody within 30 yards of him when he caught the ball. Uh, but he is finding those guys when they're open. Yeah. Uh, real quick on Cedric Wilson. That was an example. They they ran that play, saw how the defense reacted in the first half, and then came back to it in, in the third quarter. And that's why he was so wide open. They They ran the same play, saw what the defense did, and then used that tendency against them in the third quarter when they were in that same look. So... Um, yeah, th- this offense is hitting on all cylinders right now. I mean, you know, Dak goes through with Kellen Moore. He's evolved in this offense. Uh, they've tailored it to do what he does best and his strengths, and you can see that. Uh, you know, you you brought up several points earlier. I thought it was good. You know, you brought up Des Bryant earlier and uh, Tony Romo and, and waiting until Des was open. Um, a lot of this is about trust 
and the receiver running their routes and being where they're supposed to be, right? Mm-hmm. And and this is not a knock on Des at all. He was a dominant receiver uh, for three to four years. You can make the argument he was as good as any receiver in the NFL. But he was a physically imposing receiver who who won battles and jump balls and contested balls, and you could throw into a tight window. Uh, and he would do it because he was so physically overpower, um, you know, the the defender. It wasn't a lot about his route running and being in the exact right spot. That wasn't that wasn't Des Bryant's strength. Well, Amari Cooper, that is his strength. He runs precise routes. Um, you know, you you don't have to you don't have to wait to see him open to throw the ball because you know he's going to be where he needs to be once the ball is released. And so Dak has that confidence and that trust with these receivers, especially Cooper. Um, very quickly, another example of, of, of Dak and how he sees the field. You know, he was talking about just a, a beautiful over-the-shoulder shoulder touchdown catch by Cooper there in the third quarter uh, when they broke the game open against Carolina. The play was defended well. Uh, it was right along the sidelines, just inside uh, the the end zone, just as you cross the the stripe. Uh, there was really only one place for uh, Dak to throw that ball. He threw it. It was a thirty five yarder, beautiful play. They had that same play available in the Chargers game, and Dak was talking about it because Cooper came up to him and said, "Hey, I had it for a touchdown." Well, what he did in the Chargers game was. He had that play, but then he looked in the middle of the field and there was no one around Blake Jarwin, who was 20 yards down the field. So in that instance, he threw 20 yards to Jarwin. So you still got a chunk play. It was still a good play, but but how can you make it better? And they made it better in the Carolina game by taking that shot there. So just the the understanding and filing it away that, you know, Dak is going, okay, two games ago. I had this exact same throw. I left a touchdown out there because I went to a wide open Jarwin for 20. Okay, now I'm going to to Cooper because I trust it. We could have gotten it before. We have it again now. Same look. Boom. Let's do it. And uh, just operating at such a high level. And to me, that kind of uh, explains and, and shows where he is now. Even when he makes a decision... It's not a bad one. A 20-yard gain to Blake Jarwin is not a bad decision. Uh, but he could have had a touchdown in that game. He recognized it and he went, okay, well, now I'm going for the touchdown here against Carolina. Yeah, <clears throat> there's no question about that. I think he is making much better decisions and making them much more uh, quickly. Quickly, much more decisive. Yeah, I think there was one game this year early, and I haven't seen it late, but he was getting the ball out of his hands like two – you know, right at 2.08 seconds or something, which was leading the league through the first two weeks of the season, I believe. Yeah. Let's let's talk about the defense real quickly in the time we have left on the Cowboys uh, segment of this podcast. Um, you, you know, we've given Dan Quinn a lot of credit for what's happened with his defense this year, and rightfully so. He's done a terrific job. Uh, Jerry told a very weird story about uh, uh, Dan Quinn's impact and suddenly lurched into some memory of, of a coach he had at one time who broke his wrist during a practice. And, and then he said, and that's Dan Quinn. So it was just classic, Jerry. I, I, I love that quote. But anyway, uh, the the thing, though, that strikes me about this defense is that as it, it is playing much better uh, than it was last year. There's no question about that. It was it'd be hard not to play a lot better. It was just so terrible. <clears throat> but one of the big things about this defense still to me is that 
you, you did give up 28 points to uh, to Carolina, and you, you did allow them to come back at the end of that game. And, uh, and some of that was when uh, Trayvon Diggs was standing on the sideline because they said they were trying to give him a blow because of his back was bothering him a little bit. This is a defense that still uh, needs big-time plays from big-time players to, to work. Uh, Trayvon Diggs is playing at an all-world level. I cannot remember the last time a Dallas cornerback has played as well as he is. And these are not, you know, so many times interceptions are just big, pretty packages. You know, I, I think about Larry Brown in Super Bowl 30 standing there and, and Neil O'Donnell's just throwing the ball to him. Uh, you know, so many times in, in these interceptions with Trayvon, he's making terrific reads. He's making terrific yeah. reactions and he's got great hands. And he, you know, he, and he catches every time the ball's in it within his grasp, he catches it. So these were, these are just tremendous plays by him. I, I, I don't, I would never confess be watching every other cornerback in the league. I would be hard pressed to think though of another cornerback who's playing as well as he is. So when he's playing like this, when Randy Gregory's playing really well, when, when Micah Parsons is playing really well, this defense is really good. Uh, but it, it is still capable of giving up plays uh, and giving up yardage uh, and going down the field. It is, it is not a, it is not what I would call a dominant defense. Well, I have to look at the numbers going into the Carolina game they had given only one defense in the league had given up more big plays. Uh, and those are plays of 20 or more yards. Only one team has done that. Uh, my guess is Dallas is still going to rank either 31st or 32nd defensively in number of big plays allowed. Uh, the, the, and, and the red zone defense has not been good. Uh, so those are two areas they need to improve. Uh, but very quickly, they have already run through 30 players defensively because of injuries at this stage, which is Dan Quinn says he's never remembered going through that many players through only four games in a season. Uh, but you're right. This defense, while it gives up big plays, uh, Micah Parsons and I think Trayvon Diggs specifically uh, offset that by the impact they have had. They've helped transform this defense. And I'll tell you another guy, Oso Digizua has been outstanding as a rookie in the defensive line, getting pressure in there. Uh, this defense should get better. They'll get Demarcus Lawrence back. They'll get Kelvin Joseph, their second-round pick back. They should get Carlos Watkins, who was their starting defensive tackle back this week uh, against New York. Um, these are they, – they have navigated – yeah, there, there's a lot of room for improvement here, but this defense is making plays to offset the plays they're giving up, which is something they have not done in the past. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, Evan, we're going we're gonna to shift over to uh, a team with absolutely – Wait, Evan, do you have another joke in your joke series before – as our segue before we get into this one? No, I'm going to leave it alone. <laughs> Thank you. Our our listeners thank you. Our my my children thank you. Uh, it it is unbelievable that you would be so so graceful in in allowing us not and gracious in allowing us not to, to listen to any more of your jokes. Uh, so Evan, you're you are covering a team with no future. <laughs> much like myself, none. Yes, exactly. That's why we. That's it why we put you, nicely. Yeah. That's yeah. so why we put you on that assignment. Uh, twenty-five to, years. Uh, people with twenty-five years on that beat, and you're and still. What do you have to show for it. Twenty-five years on that hamster wheel. That's what the Rangers yep. are. That's what that's that's what should be up on the billboards now. Uh, uh, John Daniels. John Daniels <laughs> on a hamster wheel. What do you think? 
I think that kind of describes the language I, I, right listen, now. Listen, I, I think that would be an outstanding advertising campaign. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Evan, you had a little helpful uh, story the other day in one of your little stories. Uh, one of your little stories. Can you be more dismissive? Oh, my gosh. Evan loves to do that. Evan always likes to ask me when I'm out there with him, what are you going to write in your little column? Uh, so I, I just try to, like to turn the tables on our old pal. Uh, so in, uh, in there, you were talking about the twins and the tigers and the, and the different approaches to build rebuilding terrible teams. And of course the tigers with Dave Dombrowski went the free agent route. Dave Dombrowski was one of the finalists for the Rangers job before they gave it to John Hart. That was a great move. Uh, and then uh, uh, also you talked about the Twins and the, and the Twins approach, which was they had a core of young players they developed themselves, really good uh, for young players, and then they were able to build uh, a winner off of that. Uh, so, Evan, the question I have is that right now they can't take the Twins approach because they don't have four really young stars that I could identify. I mean, I mean, we're, we're guessing that maybe Josh Young is. We're guessing that these pitchers, Jack Leiter, Cole Wynn, you know, Ricky Venasco, we're guessing that maybe they're going to be that, but we still just don't know. Well, Kevin, once again, you've missed the entire point, but that's all right. Um, <laughs> uh, no, the, I, the the point of the column this morning was basically to, to say, listen, let, let's look back at 100 lost teams, and no matter how big the Rangers' uh, aims may be this offseason, Here's what history tells us. And, and history tells us that gains are probably going to be kind of modest. Now, the Twins and the Tigers are two examples of teams that did have some sustainable success long term. Um, and, and, and the Twins made the playoffs two years, uh, actually were the only team to lose 100 games one year and make the playoffs the next when they made the wild card in 2017 as an 85-win team. But the 2016 team had guys like uh, Berrios pitching for them. It had Byron Buxton. It had uh, Eddie Rosario. It had Miguel Sano at that point in time, who had a brighter future than he appears to have right now. There was a nucleus of guys to build around. I'm not so sure that the twi- that the Tigers were in the same boat, but over each of the next three years, the Tigers signed Pudge Rodriguez, who's the biggest contract that has ever signed with a 100 with a 100 loss team. And then they kept doing it, and they signed Maglio Ordonez the next year, and they signed um, Kenny Rogers for 2006, and they paired it up with the emergence of Curtis Granderson, who they had drafted, and their first overall pick in 2004, Justin Verlander, and had themselves a a championship-caliber club that went to the playoffs five times in a 10-year period. Where the Rangers are in that arc, I don't know, because I don't know that I feel as good about the players that played in the big leagues this year compared to any of those other players that, that we just mentioned. Um, you mentioned Josh Young, and it, it's hard to really gamble, or or I think it's really difficult to lay core player at the feet of a guy who's yet to take a major league at bat. He could be that guy, but that's that, that would be the start. I, I think they got major league playing ability out of Tyner Falefa, out of uh, Nathaniel Lowe out of Adolis Garcia. I still don't know if those guys are core talents. But where I do feel like the Rangers are in line with some of these clubs is that there is some talent starting to come through the system. And if you, you can pair up some investments in free agency over the next couple of years 
with the potential emergence of guys like Jack Leiter and Cole Wynn, maybe you do have kind of a Tigers model where you pair up um, real resources financially with an emerging minor league system and do create a long-term contender. The one caveat on all that is the Tigers lost 119 games in 2003. 2004, they lost 90 games. 2005, they lost 90 games. They went to the World Series in 2006. The point being, it's still a long road ahead of the Rangers. Yeah, it's it's, and I get that the whole idea of uh, all right, you you have to have at least serviceable players, at least major league caliber players, and I think that they have shown that. I think that low, I think that Adolis Garcia, I think kind of for I think those guys are all guys who can play on your club, and I think it should factor into what they do. Now, it, it, it let, let's take kind of for if they can't. You know, they shouldn't just dismiss him as a shortstop. Uh, I, I think he plays the position really well. I think he's going to hit okay. You know, he's to me what he is is a, 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 a kind of a, a little akin to what Elvis Andrus was. Uh, he's, he's that kind of shortstop. Not a great one, but but not a bad one when, when Elvis was at his best. Uh, so th- so those that should be fa- a factor into when, when they're – chasing these free agents, which I, I don't know why any of these, these, uh, the top tier free agents would come to Texas, you know, to the Rangers. I just don't know why they would. Uh, but, but if, it, but if, it, if I could get a guy like Trevor Simeon to come and play second base, I don't know if he'd want to play second base anymore. That's what he was playing in Toronto. He'd rather play shortstop. Uh, that's something you certainly would dangle in front of the guy if you were really trying to get him. But, uh, I, I think, cause that's a position where right now I don't see any, I don't see anybody. Uh, you you can't have if you're going to have kind of left at short you cannot you have to have a big time offensive second baseman. Yeah, yeah. and I, I listen. I think that if you if you really cut to the chase, there is a role for Isaiah Kiner Falefa on a championship club, and I think that that role would probably be best served as something of a modified version of Chris Taylor for the Dodgers, um, a guy who can play multiple positions, play 140 games for you, um, give you give you good contact skills. I think Isaiah got into some bad habits in June in, in uh, June and July when he got obsessed with the All-Star game and, and, and some personal accomplishments, and he got back to who he was in August and September and put up good numbers. I was impressed with the fact that physically he held up. But <clears throat> I, I feel like the best players on the market are available at shortstop in Carlos Correa, in Corey Seager, in um, uh, Trevor, Trevor Story. Story, and you could make the case for Marcus Simeon if, if you wanted to to put him back at shortstop. But that's where the best players are available, and the Rangers need to go out and get the best players. The thing is, Kevin, and just like the Tigers did with Pudge, that was a $40 million contract for four years at a point in time when those were very rare. You're going to have to money whip somebody, and you're going to have to take some risk on to do so. That's what the Rangers have to understand if they're going to play this free agent game. And they've played that money whip game. Alex Rodriguez, 10 years, $252 million. That worked out great. It might have worked out better if they'd have been willing to continue to invest around Alex, but they didn't, you know. And, and that's one thing is this is not a one-year fix. It's going to take them money over the next couple of years. Absolutely. All right, that's uh, that's our Rangers segment. Uh, we're going to move on now to the, the Mavericks. Uh, on Wednesday, will play their first uh, preseason game, uh, and we're going to. It's just crazy to me how they just 
creeps up on you right in the middle of football season. Uh, but and at the end of baseball, but the uh, the Mavericks' uh, number one priority, David, has to be how can we get our money's worth out of Kristaps Porzingis. Well, and that's really there were some other factors that had been simmering for a while, but um, that was really a big part of the regime change that, that happened at the end of, of the last po- failed postseason. Um, seeing how not, not even minimally that, that Porzingis was able to contribute to that series. I mean, he was, he was an afterthought. Uh, you can't have a player that good with that sort of financial investment, just standing off to the side and not being part of, of uh, of your chance to win a series, which is what he devolved into. Um, to me, this whole season is about, you know what you have in Luka, uh, you know what you have in Tim Hardaway Jr., you know what you have in a lot of the the pieces around there. You still aren't really sure if Kristaps Porzingis is going to be a central figure going forward. And that, you have to determine that this year. And uh, with Jason Kidd uh, coming out and saying he's a power forward, not a center. Um, you know, you've got to find his comfort zone. You've got to utilize him in this attack. You've got to get um, him and, and Luca comfortable in how they play off of each other and how they are still can bring their strengths to what is best for the team. And, um, I, you know, I, I think it was too early. I, I thought it was too early to give up on him and move on and, and try to patch this together elsewhere. Uh, but but you're going to determine that this season. This is a season where you know, just like we were talking about with the Rangers, where you have to get some players in place here and see if they're part of it going forward. This this is the make or break season for Kristaps Porzingis and whether or not his future is with the Mavericks. And but but you have to give him every opportunity if it's not going to succeed. It has to be because Kristaps Porzingis failed. It can't be because the system didn't put him in a position to succeed. And I, I think that's what this season is about, especially early this season. Yeah, I agree with you that it was it's too early to give up on that. Uh, you know, I, I know that that fans are frustrated with him because you know he's yes he, he does get hurt a lot. He, he's probably not going to be a guy who plays seventy five games a year for you. He's probably going to be more like sixty five in in that realm uh, in, on a good season. But you know, you look at his numbers last year. He averaged twenty points and what nine rebounds a game. Uh, it was pretty good. He had a good bounce back season until he got to the postseason. Then it was just quizzical how he wasn't used in, in that series. Yeah, and, and you know, obviously, a lot of that was uh, by design with, with what Rick Carlisle was doing, which was very curious considering what uh, Porzingis had done the year before in the bubble against the Clippers and played so great. It just didn't yeah. even make any sense. And so, uh, but there's it's undeniable there is a chemistry issue between uh, Luca and KP. They they just don't seem to have that chemistry on the floor that they need to have. Uh, and, and that is uh, striking to me because I felt like that was going to be the one thing they would be able to do, being two players from a European background. Usually those guys are very good about sharing the ball, very good about passing. They have, a, they have great all-around skills when it comes to that. And it's just been a mystery to me why they have not been able to do that. I think some of it is that that KP feels he comes from a background where he's always been the first guy, the first option. You know, it's difficult for him to be on a team. I think where Luca clearly is the best player, uh, and he's the number two player. And I think 
I think once KP gets that into his head that he can still be a, a really good player and be a really good player on a team making a title run, it's if he accepts this role and if the and if the Luca can get him into the offense, I think they have to run plays through him occasionally to get him involved. He's not great at creating his own shot. You you need to be able to get him into the offense somehow, and that's what Jason Kidd has said they were going to do. Uh, from other people I've talked to, they said that's their number one priority is getting him involved in the pick and roll more. Do do the kind of things that he he has to do to be an effective player. Well, you know, maybe maybe their skill sets and their temperaments aren't compatible. Uh, but but you need to determine that definitively this year. You know, you can go back through NBA history and, and look at some wildly talented players who were the same age and you thought it was going to work out and did not because um, just to what you said, uh, they, you know, each player was the alpha dog and they weren't willing to sacrifice or subjugate their ego for the best of the team, or they just didn't have a skill set that would allow them to do it. Uh, they felt it took away too much from who they were and they didn't want to be that player. And so you broke up and you went on. That could be the case here, but with the way that Luca plays, you should be able to accommodate this, but it's also going to take Porzingis recognizing that he is not the best player on this team and accepting that. But not being the best player on this team can still make you one of the top 10 players in the game, right? Yeah, uh, we saw that with Chicago. Scottie Pippen wasn't the best player on that team. You know, but, you know, again, eventually that's what broke up the, the, the Lakers early, right? With, with Shaq and Kobe Bryant. Their, their egos couldn't accommodate each other. Um, you know, you had that early in Minnesota where it looked like uh, with um, – you know, where it looked like they were going to put together a, a, a team with all this wonderful individual talent, uh, couldn't get it done because of egos. And Kevin Garnett had a game that very much played off of others, and you still couldn't get it to work. So temperamentally, we're, we're you know, it's incumbent on is on incumbent on Porzingis to recognize where he is in the hierarchy here, and still accept the fact that. You can be the second best player on the team and you can be a 2012 guy who is essential to success in getting the team to where it needs to go. No question about that. All right. We've got a big game uh, this week at the Cotton Bowl, the State Fair, Texas OU. Always a great time of year. The greatest annual sporting event in Texas, Texas OU, no question about it. Not so much just because of the teams that are playing there in the rivalry, but because of the, the setting in the middle of the State Fair. It's just my favorite thing to go to. Because you're corny. I'm a corny dog guy. Uh, I'll be out there. You have my corny dog. Um, so this year, uh, the uh, going into this game, it, it, it should be a good game. should be a close game. Last year, you know, it went to four overtimes. It was a crazy finish, and then it ended in all this controversy because, uh, you know, you, you got Ellinger, Sam Ellinger standing down there, the only guy that you can see uh, with singing the eyes of Texas. I, I'm hoping that that nothing off the field like that becomes a factor in this game. Uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, but uh, we we still don't know how good these Big 12 teams are, how big, how good Oklahoma is, how good Texas is. Uh, we, we know that we got a pretty good idea about how uh, – good Texas A&M is, uh, and the Aggies have, have bounced out of the top 10 and all the way out of the, the top 25 because they don't have a quarterback. Um, so can, that, that has been a huge, can we just take a moment here? And I, I just want to say that 
I'm just happy that this weekend that Texas and, and, and Oklahoma players will be in a safe space um, where <laughs> where there will be nobody raining down jeers upon them for, for joining the SEC. Um, you know, hopefully, hopefully the, the because they're now – kindred spirits nobody will will do the down the down horn sign or or yell oh you sucks I, I just can't believe that these players and I'm thinking about starting a foundation to support this that these players have been subjected to taunts about joining the SEC I, I just can't think of a worse thing are you finished yes okay I, I think I'd rather listen to your dad jokes all right what do you the, call a hippie's that, wife that, that. Gosh. <laughs> oh. I don't know, Evan. What do you call him? He's wife. No, you said Mississippi. That's right. Mrs. Not Hippie. Mrs. Hippie. You're supposed to say Mrs. Hippie, not Mississippi. Mississippi. <laughs> <laughs> you don't even know how to tell these jokes. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's very ridiculous to listen to everybody talking about how what they've had to endure. Uh, <laughs> You know, I, I know people are trying to get this story to go somewhere, and it's just it's just not working. You know, until they're, they're uh, burning effigies of you uh, at the game or something like that, I, I think that they'll just have to. It, it, it's hard to find sympathy for two programs um, that are jumping to to fatten the coffers of their uh, athletic programs. So, uh, I'm sorry if the players are getting anything personal, but uh, I, I really don't. That, to me, that's not a big story. That Texas and OU players are being teased and taunted about joining the SEC. Um, you know, you know, it's, it's fun that people talk about the the money issue. I, I still believe that the the biggest motivating factor for certainly for Texas was that we're just tired of playing in this little boys league. We want to play with the big boys. You know, and I, I think this was their because Texas makes more money than any other program in the nation, you know, so they're what are they going to do? Just make more money to separate them even more from everybody else. I mean, I, I don't think that money was the big factor. I think they felt like we're tired of being in this little boys league. We want well, to, I mean, you know, they won't, they can't be accused of underachieving in the sec. Um, the, 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 they'll, they'll, they'll be a nice middle of the, of the, uh, pack team. Um, Whereas in this little boys league, they've underachieved over and over and over and over again over the last 15 years. Well, yeah, they can at, draft off the SEC success and brand. Well, absolutely. I mean, look, look, at, yeah. look at A&M. When A&M left the Big 12, yeah. what, did, what had the Aggies done in 15 years? Nothing. So, mm-hmm. uh, so, But, they but they're consider, perceived differently. But they are perceived differently. They, yeah. they, they considered a resounding success being over here. Yes. And, and there is a feeling like that. And plus, it does matter in recruiting. You do recruit better if you're in, in the SEC, if you can say you're going in the SEC. That is sure. That has clearly been the case. So there, there are a lot of factors that go into why Texas and Oklahoma wanted to go. I, I, I can't really speak for Oklahoma. I, I really think that Oklahoma just kind of rode Texas coattails on this deal. It's like, if you want to go, we'll go, because we certainly don't want to stay here without you. Uh, we, we don't want to be the only – uh, really super team. In this but all league. that said, the last word on this whole thing is Oklahoma wins out. They're still going to end up in a playoff. I know you said three weeks ago um, after their very lackluster season opening win, Oklahoma's going to have a hard time making the playoffs. There's not four chance. There's not four playoff teams in, in college football right now. If they win out, they're going to the playoff. I think there's just two, and I think we should just we should go back to the BCS and just have two teams in the playoff: Georgia and Alabama. Right now, it looks that way. I'm I, I'm I'm not going to deny it. 
Yeah. All right. Well, you wouldn't anyway, Mr. Georgia. Uh, so that's going to do it for our podcast this week. We hope that you're going to tune in and listen. Uh, oh my gosh. Uh, and uh, we're, cause we're going to be able to talk about the, what happened to Texas OU uh, this weekend, next week. So be sure to come back next week and we'll check you then. See ya. Bye. Well, that wraps up another episode of Sports Day Insider. Is it over already? Well, Evan, all good things come to an end, I suppose. The show is produced by Jeff Whittington. And presented by the Dallas Morning News. Our theme song is by Dallas's own John Dufalo. Don't forget to follow the Dallas Morning News wherever you get your quality podcasts. You'll never miss a Sports Day Insider episode, and you'll discover some other great shows. And if you liked what you heard... Please rate the Dallas Morning News feed and give us a review. It helps us reach other sports fans and news junkies. Learn more about this show and other shows at dallasnews.com slash listen. You'll also find special Dallas Morning News subscription rates just for listeners. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you back here next week.